a new twist on ransomware and saddling mobile device makers and wireless providers with more security regulations. These stories and more coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. You're working on your computer and all of a sudden your computer says, uh, sorry, can't help you anymore and became widespread throughout the institution. That's Dr. Greg Duick. He's president of Kansas Heart Hospital in Wichita, Kansas, and was speaking with station KWCH, describing what its employees experienced last week as a result of a malware attack that froze hospital IT systems. To discuss this latest ransomware case and its unusual twist, I'm joined by ISMG Data Breach Editor, Matt Schwartz. Hi, Matt. Hi, Eric. Before you go into this case, what does law enforcement say about victims paying ransomware? That's a great question. There was some chatter at the end of last year that an FBI official off the record at a conference had said that oftentimes the Bureau just advised that people pay these ransoms if they didn't have a different way of mitigating what had happened to them. Since then, however, the FBI has come out with a full court press saying, we never recommend that you pay ransoms, but you could also look at it as it's not illegal. And the Bureau and other security experts say it really is up to victims to make that assessment for themselves. There can be a business case for paying the ransom and hoping that attackers honor what they've promised to do, which is to give you the decryption key. There can be a business case for that. But ethically speaking, it's pretty black and white. You shouldn't be giving money to people who attack you. In the case of uh, Kansas Heart Hospital, it initially did pay ransom, but it didn't get what it expected. Exactly. Yes, it was a rare case of a hospital being double billed, not the patient. The attackers came back and said, if you'd like full access to everything that we've encrypted, we request that you pay us a second ransom. And of course, that second ransom could have easily turned into a third, a fourth, and a fifth. So at that point, the hospital says they decided not to continue paying the ransoms. And thankfully, the hospital looks like it had prepared in advance, meaning it had good backups in place and had the ability to take affected systems or possibly all systems offline, wipe them and restore them from the backups. Here's what the hospital's president said in the wake of the attack. And that plan went into immediate action. I think it helped in minimizing the amount of damage that the encrypted uh, agent could do. The patient information never was jeopardized, and we took measures to make sure that it wouldn't be. It's important to remember that even though a hospital may have prepared, this isn't a zero-sum game. If you get systems infected with ransomware, you may still be able to fully recover, but that might require taking the systems offline for some period of days while you wipe and restore them. That's why the whole question of do we or don't we pay, meaning if I pay and get my systems back in an hour versus I'm offline for four days, even though I prepared, that's why it's such a tricky question. And I guess in this case, the president of the hospital said they didn't pay much the first time around and decided that they just couldn't trust them the second time when they demanded more money. Exactly. I think the attackers really did burn their bridges at that point. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Eric. We continue on the ransomware theme with an analysis by the former director of the United States Computer Emergency Response Team, Ann Baran DiCamillo, who recently left the federal service to become chief technology officer at the investment firm Strategic Cyber Ventures. Baron DiCamillo spoke with ISMG editorial director Tom Field at the just-completed ISMG Fraud and Breach Prevention Summit in Washington. We were talking before we came on camera, and you said that you'd been spending a fair amount of time studying ransomware. <laughs> what have you learned? 
Um, so ransomware has been evolving, um, you know, year over year and changing. I think uh, it's a bit of a cat and mouse game from ad from a computer network defender's perspective, which was my background, uh, to adversarial. You know, as an adversary, I'm going to leverage the least sophisticated capability I can use to get into your network. Um, and as a, a defender, I'm going to try to protect against that and, and raise the, the cost associated with you getting into my network. And so I think you're seeing an evolution and sophistication with more modern malware developers, crypto malware developers, and how they're approaching um, and evolving their malware to get past the computer network defenders uh, mitigations and strategies and so as, as we raise our protection mechanisms and defensive mechanisms they're raising their ability but they're still leveraging the least sophisticated tool in the toolbox and so what I'm interested in doing is seeing you know what are some of the corner cases of malware that are just now starting to come out you're seeing malware that's being executed in memory which is definitely different than things we've seen in the past um, that has an ability to get past a lot of these detonation chamber type endpoint protection capabilities and that's concerning and so I think, you know, looking towards that fileless type malware and how they're developing and delivering that is, is very interesting and something we're focusing on, as well as how it's entered into this whole new market space of Macs. For a long time, if you had a Mac computer, you weren't, you know, susceptible to crypto malware. And now you are um, with entry of that. So I think we're going to continue to monitor uh, ransomware and other uh, crypto malwares for the evolutions and changes that we're seeing like that. But it really does come down to educating your users, having good backups associated with your data, and having a good incident response plan if and when you're hit, so you know what to do and how to try to cut that off as quickly as possible. That's Strategic Cyber Ventures and Baron DiCamillo speaking with ISMG's Tom Field. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. The bad guys are fingerprinting phones, so they're looking to find out what kind of phone you've got, what software is on there, what version you've got, and then target the attack to exploit that, and then get into that particular phone, and then steal information, hold information hostage, or break in through that device to a bank or other kind of account. Such concerns as expressed by security researcher Stephen Cobb is behind two federal regulatory agencies, the Federal Trade Commission and Federal Communications Commission, querying eight mobile device makers and six wireless carriers about their security practices. The regulators want to learn more about how these companies release and distribute security updates to address vulnerabilities in mobile devices. To discuss these regulators' inquiries, I'm joined by my colleague and ISMG Executive Editor, Marianne Kolbesak-McGee. Hey, Marianne. Hi, Eric. What's behind the FTC's and FCC's queries to the mobile device makers and wireless carriers? Well, the FTC and FCC have regulatory authority over the makers of smartphones, tablets, and other mobile devices, as well as wireless carriers. Federal law could allow the regulators to require companies that they oversee to add additional safeguards to secure IT devices and services. Whether the regulators will toughen cybersecurity rules, such as mandating when and how security updates are implemented, is unknown, at least for now. But the inquiries are the first step to determine what, if any, new regulations the feds could require the companies in implementing added security in their devices and services. Why now? The cyber criminals are gaining more sophisticated capabilities for capitalizing on mobile device vulnerabilities. Stephen Cobb is senior security researcher at the security firm ESET, and he sees a leading role for regulators to assure the security of these devices and systems. We're facing a situation which is only going to get worse if we don't do more 
to impose tighter security on the digital ecosystem. The bad guys continue to grow in terms of capabilities. Their armory is cumulative. Every time there's a new exploit developed or a new way of attacking things, you know, such as you know, we saw in the stage fright vulnerability on Android, that goes into sort of the malware factory. And if it can't be exploited right away, it's kind of put on hold. But there's a very, very organized, methodical, market-based approach to abusing this technology. And it's a formidable adversary. Cobb contends it's entirely valid that any point in time the government thinks more could or should be done, they need to make that known. Thanks, Marianne. Thanks, Eric. Finally, too much cyber threat information sharing could pose a problem. Today's tools cannot handle the volume of data being exchanged. As ISMG's Matt Schwartz reports from a recent cybersecurity conference in Scotland, the volume of information sharing data feeds already reaches hundreds of terabytes a month in Europe. Director Rob Wainwright of Europol told the conference that the Pan-European Union Police Agency is increasingly looking to academia and the private sector to help Europol build the tools it needs to analyze all that information. Wainwright says the data feeds they're starting to get now are enormous, and to try and tackle them with conventional policing tactics tactics is practically impossible. It sounds as if overcoming this information overload in Europe is a virtual mission impossible, but one needed to succeed to battle cyber threats. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.